everyone. I'm Sam. And I'm Sean. And you're listening to Key to the Case. Welcome back to this week's episode. We would like to thank everyone who has listened so far and and downloaded the podcast. We've had more downloads than we expected here pretty early on. So we can't thank you enough. We really don't want to just be talking to each other about these cases. So we really appreciate everyone who's listening. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And as a reminder, you can reach us on Instagram at Key to the Case Podcast, where if you want to reach us directly, you can send us a, a DM or you could email us at key to the case at gmail.com. That's right. And I want to start out by saying for this case, the Arkansas Times put out a really comprehensive article about this case. So that was an incredibly helpful resource for today's episode. Let's get into it. Samantha Olson was born on October 27, 1981 in Pine Bluff, Arkansas to parents Phyllis and Stan. At some point, her parents did split up, although it's unclear when that occurred. Samantha maintained a good relationship with both her mom and her dad. Samantha is described as a hardworking, independent, friendly, kind, and sweet person. After Samantha graduated from Pine Bluff High School, she attended and graduated from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock with a bachelor's degree in accounting, and she had plans to go back to school to get her master's degree in accounting, which is very common for accountants. According to the Arkansas Times, Samantha met her husband, Eric, in the summer of 2008. They worked at the same restaurant in Little Rock, and the two developed a friendship early on, but it eventually turned into a romantic relationship when they both changed jobs and began working at the sister restaurant of the restaurant they had been working at together. Eric continued to work for this restaurant while Samantha got a job as an accountant, but she stayed on as a waitress part-time at the restaurant, most likely just to make some extra cash. It sounds like Samantha and Eric were quite a compatible duo, and they were both happy in their relationship. They were elated when they learned toward the end of 2011 that Samantha was pregnant with a baby girl. Sadly, Samantha suffered many miscarriages in the past, so initially she didn't allow herself to get too excited. But in the past, like was leading she... up to this pregnancy. Okay. So they had been trying for a while then? Yes. That that was my understanding that oh, okay. they'd been trying for some time and then finally Linnea came along. That was their daughter's name. So she was born in September 2011. And she was a healthy and happy baby. Samantha and Eric fell in love with Linnea, and they both enjoyed being parents. Samantha was a doting mom, and her parents saw her really as the perfect parent. They were very proud of Samantha and, and the kind of mom she was. Samantha and Eric got married just a couple months after the birth of their daughter, so I imagine it was a special moment to have Linnea there with them during that. One detail I learned that just really helped me understand who Samantha was is that her mom, Phyllis, went through chemotherapy for lung cancer in 2009 and 2010, and Samantha would sit with her through her treatments. Her, her mom told her, you know, you really don't have to be here every time, but Samantha insisted and really wanted to be there for her. I can imagine that meant a lot to Phyllis. You know, she said... 
well, you don't have to be there, but I'm sure deep down it was really comforting to have her there. Her family described her as the go-to person when they had a problem. They knew they could always count on Samantha to be there for them and to listen to them. So understanding how good of a person and how wholesome Samantha was, of course, makes what I'm about to share with you all the more heartbreaking. It was Wednesday, August 14th, 2013, and Samantha was out with her daughter that evening in North Little Rock, where she and Eric lived. No one really knows what she was doing that evening or where she was going because her husband, Eric, was at work and she didn't tell him or anyone else where she was going, nor was she required to tell anyone where she was going. So it seems most likely she was out running an errand or two because if she had major plans, her husband probably would have known about them. Or if she had set plans, he, he probably would have known. Yeah, I'd, I'd assume she's going to the, going, just going to the store, just right, which would not require, and you know, to to tell anyone where you're going if if you're making a five minute trip. Exactly, it would be completely unnecessary, I think, to even mention that. And he's at work, so it'd be kind of weird to text him and say, "Hey, I'm going to wherever." There was one report that she was on her way to Target, but I'm not really sure if we know that as fact. Samantha's mom theorized that she could have been out to find a birthday present for a party she was planning to attend soon. Reality is, we don't have a solid answer to the question of where she was going, and I'm not sure it's that relevant in this case. That evening, she drove her 2012 Mazda 3 hatchback and was just a few blocks from home when she would be murdered. At approximately 7 p.m., Samantha was driving east on McCain Boulevard and entered the JFK Boulevard intersection when a person who drove in the inside lane coming from the other direction of McCain stuck a gun out of their window and shot in Samantha's direction somewhere between three and six times. Her window was open just about six inches, and the bullet that killed Samantha traveled through that six-inch gap. Sadly, she died very quickly. Her daughter, Linnea, who was in the back seat and, and was just 11 months old at the time, was not hit, nor did she suffer any injuries. So when I was reading about this murder in the intersection, it was a little convoluted, so I hope I've described it in a clear way. But basically, you had Samantha and another person traveling in opposite directions, through an intersection, and he shot her while both cars were in motion. So you said it was a it was a Mazda hatchback that she was, she was driving. Yes, a blue Mazda three hatchback. Okay, so I feel like that's a pretty distinctive car. My initial thought right away was maybe someone new, someone that that drove a similar car. Maybe the, maybe the same car with the same color and they, they had an issue with this person. They had mm. beef with this person and they mistook Samantha's car as this other person's car. That is definitely a possibility that I hadn't put a ton of thought into. Like a case of mistaken identity. I definitely think that's possible in this case because as we'll talk about, the police don't think Samantha and this person knew each other. That's one thing they seem fairly certain about. So if you f- think about that, I, I definitely think that's a possibility that for some reason, this person 
had an issue with someone who drove a very similar car or the same car. And I agree that it's not a super common car. And well, I think Mazda 3s are pretty common, but the hatchback, I feel like is a little more distinctive. And the blue aspect too. Yes. I was also thinking that it's extremely brazen to essentially open fire in a busy intersection at possibly someone you think you know and may have an issue with, but even so, it, it's extremely bold to do that. So, I mean, I'm I'm kind of thinking maybe this person, the, the the shooter, was having issues finding whoever he was here. Is it a guy? I'm assuming it's a guy. Yeah, whoever he was trying to find, he was having issues finding this person, and suddenly he sees a similar car, and he's like, "Oh, here's here's my opportunity right right now. I see the windows open. I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot into this car right now." That's a good point too. Yeah, because it would explain why this was so, to your point, brazen, so sudden. This, like you said, it was a busy intersection. It's actually described as one of the busiest intersections in North Little Rock. So it's almost like, if if your theory is right, desperation. Like, oh, this is my only opportunity. I mean, then again, if you see that car, maybe a more logical method to to enact is to turn around and follow the car rather than just opening fire into a busy intersection. But, But I mean, then again, I don't think murderers are always mentally, you know, stable. So... I don't yeah. know. I, it, that was my initial thought was maybe maybe this person mistook Samantha for someone that he had beef with, an issue with, and and he took his opportunity, saw that the window was open, and he and he took the shot. You know. Yeah, I was also quite shocked though that someone could hit another person in a moving vehicle like that. Yeah, it's pretty pretty lucky. I, I, I would think. Well. <laughs> Well, maybe not lucky is the right word there. Yeah, let's not say lucky, but... Low probability. Low probability, yeah. And I don't know exactly how close the two vehicles were to each other, but from my research, it sounded like this would not have been easy to land. And another possibility is that the person who fired the shots didn't necessarily think it would land. Is this just some, you know, totally unhinged person who shot out at someone's car and and didn't actually think they would kill someone. Hey, I feel like yeah, I don't I, I, going with your theory though. That would seem kind of outlandish just someone ra- someone randomly firing into the car just because they felt like it. Yeah. But going with your theory, I was just thinking what if they were trying to send someone a message, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like I said, this was one of the busiest intersections in North Little Rock. It was a nice evening. The weather was great. So many people were out and there were a number of witnesses who came forward. Not all of the witness accounts align with each other, but several witnesses observed that the vehicle in question did not race away or speed off. They simply leisurely left the scene driving at a typical speed for that area. It's wild. The murderer continued to drive down McCain Boulevard for about a mile until he turned left down Camp Robinson Road. Now, the witnesses all agreed that the vehicle was a maroon Ford F-150, which I think most people are familiar with, but in case you're not, it's a pickup truck that is incredibly common. I think it's the the most... Most common truck. Most common car in the U.S. 
Yeah. So, some of the witnesses described that there was a toolbox in the bed of the truck, quote, a kind of steel crate with forklift rungs favored by those employed in construction trades, unquote. But there were varying statements about the color of the toolbox. Some people recalled it being orange and others recalled it being silver. And I found that kind of odd how, how different those colors are. It'd be one thing if some people said it was red, others said it was orange. But yeah, in this case, some people swore it was orange and others said, no, it was silver. But regardless, the existence of a toolbox is agreed upon. That was certain. I mean, how was the color getting confused? That's what I'm saying. It's really weird. Yeah, I feel like you would know the difference between orange and silver. Maybe. Do you think there were two? Yeah. Well, maybe. Maybe. I I was thinking maybe it's a dual color scheme. Yeah, that's a possibility. Or like I said, I thought maybe there were two in in the truck. Or maybe like a orange or silver body and then the opposite color as as the lid. Yeah. I almost feel like those two colors had to be present (laughs) for for people to be saying that. All witnesses agreed that it was a man driving the truck, but they did not agree on the race of the individual. So there was virtually no description of this man to work with. Only having the gender of the suspect to work with is not a good starting point as far as descriptions go. You, You can't make a composite sketch with that little information. The only thing I can think is that it just happened so fast and maybe the driver had tinted windows that obscured the view of his face to some degree. And we'll get into it, but there are images and videos of the vehicle and the windows do look like they're tinted to me. So I can see how it would be more difficult to get a good look at this person. But his window is open, right? I think it was open just enough for him to put his mm, arm okay, out. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't all the way down where then so at the that tent, point. The tent could still cover his face. Yes, okay. I believe so. Samantha's dad was the first to learn the news about Samantha's death. He received a phone call from someone at the hospital she was admitted to, and they told him to come to the hospital, but they would not provide specific details. He had actually seen on the news that someone was shot at the JFK and McCain intersection, and he did not know that that was Samantha at that point. They hadn't released her identity yet. So his assumption was that she had gotten into a car accident because she had gotten into a couple of accidents in the past. He told the Arkansas Times that Samantha had a habit of driving hard, as he described it. So he was completely horrified and shocked when he learned that she had been shot. It just didn't make any sense to him. It didn't compute for him. Her dad was the one to inform Samantha's mom, Phyllis, and she had the same reaction. She had seen the news as well, but didn't think it was Samantha. They both had this feeling of why and and how, just complete confusion and devastation. Yeah, you've described her as being someone who would have essentially zero Enemies or yes. maybe enemy is not is kind of too strong of a word, but someone who would have, who would have little to no beef with anyone, especially not someone who would want to kill her, you know, because yeah. yeah. she's been described as, you know, the perfect mom, kind, sweet, everything. So it seems like she wouldn't, she would never be in, in this type of situation. Exactly. Yeah. And Samantha did not acquaint herself with shady characters or 
activities. So it was just impossible for them to comprehend how she ended up in this situation. Eric and the rest of the family learned the news moments later and devastation took over. I can't really fathom what this was like for this family. And I especially think about Eric, who is now a single father. I think about Linnea, who will never have her mom again. And then it's hard not to think about the person who did this, right? They got to go home to their partner or their child or their mom or whomever it is in their life that they love, yet this family will never be the same again. The investigation into Samantha's murder began immediately. The biggest clue they had was the truck. So they reviewed surveillance footage from local businesses along the roads he traveled. This was, you know, in an attempt to get images of this truck and maybe even a license plate. As I mentioned earlier, he turned onto Camp Robinson Road. And this road has quite a few businesses along it and homes as well. So I'm sure that was a positive sign to start. Now, it's unclear how many surveillance cameras captured the truck, but there were a few and may have even been more than what we're aware of. But the images that have been shared publicly are very grainy and blurry and, in my opinion, not super useful because there are no distinguishing features, really, that you can make out from the images. So since you said all of the footage from, I guess you'd call it the crime scene, was was pulled from local businesses that were close to the intersection, I'm, I'm going to make an educated guess that they weren't able to pull any any footage from any traffic cameras that they might have had at the intersection or if there even were any traffic cameras. Right. So what's interesting, something I learned in my research is that Arkansas, and I think this would apply to 2013 when this case took place, they prohibit red light cameras, but they do have traffic cameras The traffic cameras exist simply to monitor traffic congestion. So yes, the the cameras that were relied upon in this case were were from businesses. As far as I can find, there was no use of intersection cameras because that would have been great if they had that in this case, I think, but it was more reliant on the businesses. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked that they didn't... You know, this is 2013. I'm uh, I'm pretty shocked that they didn't have traffic cameras at the busiest intersection in in North Little Rock because I don't know. I'm I'm assuming since it's a, since it's the busiest, based on probability, they probably have the a high number of of accidents and fender benders stuff like that. So I I would think they would want to have cameras present to monitor that that type of situation. Yeah, you would think so. The last time the truck was captured, though, on camera was at the intersection of 35th Street and Camp Robinson Road. I think after there, he could have turned on to a few different streets, but the highway, Interstate 40, is pretty much right there. If he got on the highway, he could have separated himself from the crime scene and that area in a very short amount of time. Unfortunately, a license plate or even a partial license plate could not be determined from the surveillance footage, which is frustrating. And Samantha's father told the Arkansas Times, quote, I don't know what else they can do. With the cameras they had, they followed this truck supposedly 
videoed this truck all the way down to Camp Robinson and to Levy. And it just seems impossible that they didn't have a license plate number on this vehicle, unquote. And Levy is just the area the killer was last seen in. I'm inclined to agree that this is a distance of about two miles. So if police did their jobs correctly, then maybe it just came down to the angle of the video, right? If you think about it, the businesses along the road are really only only going to capture the side of the truck. So the best luck probably would have been a business on the corner where he turned onto Camp Robinson Road. Yeah, I'm not I'm not surprised at all that businesses cameras weren't able to detect or not detect but see the the license plate because they're the purpose of those cameras isn't to watch the road it's to it's to watch the you know the entrance of their of their businesses so i'm i'm not really that surprised that they weren't able to figure out what the license plate said and but even if they did the footage is so grainy and blurry that i'm not sure a plate would have been caught anyway yeah yeah By the way, these photos will be on our social media. I think they're really important to share, especially for people in Arkansas. Arkansas, like most other states in the South, does not require car owners to have a front license plate. I would hope they were able to tell if this car had a front license plate, even if they weren't able to read it, because that would tell you this car was registered in another state. But most of the states surrounding Arkansas do not require front license plates with the exception of Missouri. So even if they established there was no front license plate, it still doesn't rule out that the car was registered outside of Arkansas. Also, I hope they looked at surveillance footage from the surrounding areas before he got to the intersection where the murder took place. Yeah, try to track him back. Yeah, like where did this guy come from? Yeah, yeah. It looks like there are a lot of homes along that road, not as many businesses, but a mile down the road, there are some businesses. So it seems like it would have been worthwhile to check in with residents along that road and the business owners to see if they had um, video footage that would be useful. So they, are you saying they didn't do that? I'm saying I don't know. All the video footage that I could find that was discussed was after after the murder. Yeah. That's a good point though. I mean- you know which way he's coming from, so you, you, you could backtrack and, and, and see if the other businesses have, have a better angle. Right. It'd be great to figure out as far back as this guy went, right? Because one, like I said, where is he coming from? And two, if you found him in maybe a neighborhood or a certain part of this area that you wouldn't expect just not like a main street, I guess is what I'm saying, that could be really useful too because that might allude to the idea that he is from in town and he is from, or at least he's familiar with this area. The North Little Rock Police Department didn't find any evidence that this was a targeted murder. While they said they can't rule anything out, it is not their belief that someone wanted Samantha dead. So that would mean this is a totally random murder, which is quite uncommon. They cite the fact that Samantha didn't have any, any any enemies and that the cars were going in opposite directions as reasons why it seems like a random act. I suppose my question would be, was this related to road rage? Samantha was only a few blocks away from her home, so it would have had to have been a really quick incident. 
And I know they were driving in opposite directions, but I guess I wondered if maybe she cut someone off by accident and then they got upset, sped past her, then turned around. And when he saw her at the intersection, he decided to shoot. Yeah. You mentioned her dad say that she's yeah. kind of a hard, what, what did he said? She say? drives hard. Drives, yeah. She's a hard driver. Yeah, I mean, road rage, road rage is a, I mean, it's it's extremely prevalent. Yeah, a lot of people get extremely enraged. I mean, I you always hear me screaming in the car, but I'm, I'm not going to go and you know shoot someone. Yeah, that's but, a different. Uh, but yeah, you know, you 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 see these videos on, you know, Twitter and Facebook of people just getting absolutely crazy. Yeah, but then it's like, how often is it really escalating to murder? Not that often, but yes, road rage, common. And then, yeah, when you couple it with the fact that Samantha was a hard driver, according to her dad, and she'd been in accidents before, it's hard not to at least ask the question. And also, I mean, okay, she she may be a hard driver, but she had her she had her baby in the car. I, I can't imagine she's going to be driving recklessly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Or carelessly. Know? Yeah. Right. Maybe prior to the baby, she was quote unquote, a, a hard driver, but with the baby in the car, I, I can't imagine that she's going to be, you know, driving way over the speed limit, just swerving in and out of lanes. That, that's what I'm picturing a, a hard driver being, you know, just yeah. kind of being a little reckless. I, I, I would assume that she, she had changed her, driving ways, I would hope. I would think so. Yeah. And and there's no evidence that this is what happened. You would think maybe they could capture that on camera too. Again, from the businesses along the road. Yeah, good point. Could you see this car coming, but you know, behind Samantha, passing her and then turning around? I mean, it it seems like they could have figured that out. Um, So... I guess, I don't know. In my head, I was just trying to draw some reason for it. Not that there's any acceptable reason, but in the mind of someone who is completely unhinged, they might see someone cutting them off or something of that nature as reason to shoot at that person. But if this was a purely random murder, that makes this case incredibly difficult to solve since the person would have no connection to Samantha at all. It didn't help that the truck they were looking for was a popular one. They knew the make, model, and color, and they had an estimate for the years somewhere between 2004 and 2008. The North Little Rock Police Department reached out to every owner of a maroon Ford F-150 pickup in Pulaski County, and that led to nothing. Maroon? That was kind of shocks me that that's a fairly... I would think that the make, model, and color would boil it down to just a handful. Mm, you'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are- red is a popular color, and it, maroon seems like it'd be narrow it down a lot more than probably what you're about to present. Yeah, I I did think about that too. At least I was thinking, oh, you know, Ford F one fifty. That's a super common truck, but at least it's maroon, right? That yeah. helps, but it's still a large. Yeah, because where I work, there are, I think, so we have about, I don't know, 120 people in the office, maybe 100. And there are, I think, 
five red F-150s, no maroon. Mm. So that's that's just what I'm basing it on. <laughs> yeah, my, that's uh, your sample size. <laughs> my, my personal sample size, yeah. But, you know, when they were reaching out to people, I'm curious what that contact looks like. What if someone didn't respond? Do they note that and move on? If they do make contact directly with someone, what kind of questions do you ask? Maybe if it was soon after that evening, you could ask for an alibi. But are they really going to vet every single alibi? I suppose you could ask what they do for work. If it's something related to construction, that could be someone you keep an eye on. I know one tactic they had was looking for identifiers on the vehicle that would rule it out, such as if the truck had totally different wheels, but people can change those. So it just seemed like a huge task from the start if the only information there is is the vehicle and that a man was driving. The person could have been from out of town or even from another state like we discussed, and that would complicate matters even more. The North Little Rock community was scared, rightfully so. They didn't know who did this, and I'm sure there were fears, at least in the weeks and months following the murder, that they could become a victim if this person wasn't apprehended because of how random it appears. In more recent articles and interviews, it's been stated by the cold case detectives who are now assigned to the case that there are over 12,000 vehicles that match the description of the truck in question in the county surrounding North Little Rock. That many? Yes. In that county? Well, the surrounding counties, yeah. And obviously a long list, that goes without being said, but especially when you don't even know who you're looking for. They, they don't know what this person looked like. They don't even have a basic age ban to target. I would think, you know, I could be wrong, that the murderer would have wanted to get rid of the vehicle because it was all over the news. His car was on the news. I suppose it's possible if he weren't from that area that w- they wouldn't be in such a rush. Yeah, but... If it's that common, I would imagine he's seen those all the time and he's like, oh, I maybe I don't need to ditch my vehicle because there's I see 20 a day just driving around, you know? Yeah, but yeah, that's a good point. But I think to at least start, I would be highly interested in the weeks and months after the murder, whose registration for the vehicle was terminated. I assume that list of 12,000 is somewhat of a historical list and they compare it down to people whose registration termination date was shortly after the murder. That seems like a much more manageable list to work with, at least to start. I mean, to your point, maybe he didn't get rid of the car. Maybe he just continued to drive it. I mean, this guy is brazen and callous, so... For all we know, he probably did keep driving the car because he doesn't care. But I think if you're just trying to narrow that list of 12,000 down, starting with people who the registration ended around that time or even maybe within a year could be a good place to be in. And now what you just said is making me question this next part, but I'd also like to know if any salvage yards in the area took in a car that matched the vehicle. A salvage yard may not keep track of details like the color of the car, but 
What I would hope they could do is get a list of bins from salvage yards in the surrounding area that you could then join or cross-reference the list of maroon Ford F-150 trucks that they have. But then again, that could already be tracked by maybe looking when the registration ended. Maybe these tactics have been employed. If they have, I couldn't find it. I would love to hear our, our listeners what they think about this. You know, do we think this guy would keep this car? Do we not? Do we have ideas about how you could identify this vehicle or the person who owns it? I mean, something inside of me, yeah, just doesn't feel like this guy is going to scrap his car. He just seems too much, too callous to to even worry about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I, I think they would have had the best luck doing this kind of investigation in the weeks and months after the murder. It, it just seems like it'd be a way smaller pool of cars than just looking at everyone who owns a maroon Ford F-150. And now we're talking about this 10 years later. We're actually, when we publish this episode, it'll be very close to exactly 10 years since this murder I would be concerned about how long these types of records are stored somewhere like a salvage yard, for example. We suspect this guy works in construction or or some kind of trade. There are people who worked with this guy, I'm sure, or, or clients he had. Maybe someone could recall this guy getting rid of this car around that time. I'm rambling on, but a list of 12,000 people who have registered this type of car in that area seems unmanageable. So I'm just thinking through ideas of of how to pare it down. And I would assume they've already worked through these ideas, but again, if they have, they haven't really shared it. They seem to be focused on general registration records for this type of vehicle. And this is about as far as the investigation has gone. There have been some details held back, such as the type of gun used at this point. 10 years later, I think sharing the caliber of gun used could be useful. Now it's not just a man who drives this type of car. It's a man who has this type of gun who drives this type of car. Still not great. So do you know if they were able to recover any any of the bullets that were... I, I know you mentioned that he that he fired, what, three to six times? That That's what it was. Were they, were they the police able to recover any of the bullets or the casings or... Anything like that? So in my research, I found that there were no shell casings found and they won't comment on if they recovered bullets in Samantha's body or in her car. Hmm. So not a lot of information to work with there. Is that seems kind of unusual. They they don't want to release that information. Yeah, I understand holding some stuff back because if someone were to confess they would need some way to verify that confession. But as far as the bullets go, I don't, I guess, acknowledging, yes, there were bullets in the car, for example. I don't know if there were, but if that's the case, I don't see the point of holding that back unless maybe it has something to do, again, with the number of times the person fired since it was a range, three to six, maybe only the killer would know exactly how many times they fired and they don't yeah. want to say, oh, we found four bullets in the car and it's like, oh, well, she was shot or car was shot at four times. Just a thought there, but I mean, I don't think there's a ton of information that the investigators are holding back. I think this case has them stumped, honestly. They don't have a person of interest or suspect that they're working 
with, as far as we know. What I worry about is even if they somehow found the person who owned this specific car at that time, how do you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they killed her? We don't have video footage of the moment the murder took place. So it could come down to testimony from someone if the murderer told someone what they did. That person's testimony would be incredibly important. My mind also went the path, went down the path of geofence warrants. Are you familiar with those? No. What what are those? <laughs> a, a geofence warrant acts kind of like a reverse search warrant. So investigators can contact Google, for example, in a case like this and request information from their database to determine active mobile devices within a geofence at a certain time. So in this case, that would likely be the intersection where the murder took place. Now, some people find this kind of tactic to be unconstitutional and they believe it infringes on our Fourth Amendment rights, but can't you see how this could be incredibly powerful in this case? Because it seemed so random and and spur of the moment, I don't think the killer would have had the forethought about it turning Google's location tracking services off or turning their phone off. So it's possible that someone could be tied to this crime using this technique. So just hearing it on the, hearing the explanation of geofencing for the first time, could they pinpoint the exact time of when the incident occurred and, and use the, same location and the time in which it occurred and track people's location at that point? Is that is yes. that basically what it's doing? That's how it would work. Yeah, you would have a specific time okay. and a specific location. And then when you do the search of the database, Google could, if it was approved, Google could return the people who had like active mobile, mobile devices in that area at that time. So this is not approved. This, this was not approved. Well, no, I'm saying it wasn't. Well, I don't know. I don't think it was it's used in this case. Some people think it's unconstitutional. Yeah, but I'm not saying that. But these warrants are used. Like this is a thing that it's oh, a tactic. This, yeah, this is an active tactic that is used. Yeah, I was just saying okay. there are people who will fight against it, okay. essentially. But putting all that aside, I think the biggest issue here is that we're talking about this 10 years later if this wasn't done at that time, which I don't think geofence warrants were really happening in 2013, I would worry that that location history information is not available. But I could be wrong. But think about it. If you got a short list of people who were in the geofence at that time, okay, you'd cross off women, then look at the men and determine what vehicle they had at that time. And if you found someone who had this maroon Ford F-150, that would be really powerful evidence. But This could all be wishful thinking, to be honest. I mean, let's just think about the kind of person who would do this. Again, you'd have to be callous, reckless, careless, but also measured to a certain degree. The way this person drove off is is eerie to me. The kind of person who would do something like this seems like the same kind of person who would want to tell people about it. So it's possible there are others who know who was responsible and just haven't come forward. Yeah, that's the that's the creepiest part to me is that this guy drove off at the speed limit just casually yeah, away. Not a care in the world. 
I did this thing and now I'm driving away at the speed limit. It, yeah. That is eerie. It makes you wonder if they've done this before, done yeah, something like yeah, this sure. before. Yeah. Right. I mean, is there a similar crime in another random state that hasn't been connected? I, <laughs> they're so random that it seems like, yeah, they wouldn't be connected, but I mean, maybe there's also someone who saw the news and noticed that their coworker who drives the same type of vehicle was acting kind of funny the next day or they didn't show up for work the next day and they always thought it was a little bit odd, but they didn't read too far into it. Or maybe there was a partner or or friend of this person who noticed that shortly after this happened, they wanted to get rid of the car or again, they were just acting weird. It, it seems possible that someone may not have even necessarily been told directly what happened, but they might've noticed suspicious behavior from this individual afterward. So as I've mentioned, Samantha's family has been suffering the effects of this loss for the past 10 years. Linnea is now, I believe, almost 11 years old and she has had to grow up without her mom. Eric talked about how happy he was before Samantha was murdered and things were going really well for them. And in an instant, that was all taken away. Linnea and Eric moved across the country after Samantha's murder to create some separation from the tragedy. In a 2022 Fox 16 article, Eric shared that he is a single father and there are challenges that come with that, but worse is just the heartbreak he still feels and knowing that the killer is still out there. Samantha's life was cut far too short and an entire family was affected by one person's seemingly split-second decision. Just think about that. This all happened in a matter of seconds, and now Linnea will never have her mom. Eric lost his life partner. Samantha's parents lost their beloved daughter. Her siblings lost their sister, all because of one person's senseless and horrific decision. I think what struck me the most about this case is how it seemingly could have been anyone who became a victim that day, anyone in that area. We should all be alarmed by that fact and scared. I mean, the the kind of person who can commit such a brazen and senseless act could surely do it again in the blink of an eye. This is just a dangerous person to have walking around and driving around. He doesn't deserve to have his freedom. There's currently a $15,000 reward for information that leads to an arrest or conviction of the person responsible for Samantha's murder. If you have information, please contact the North Little Rock Police Department at 501-680-8439. I think this is a really important case to cover, and I think all lesser-known cases, I mean, every case is important to cover, but especially the lesser-known ones because if there's someone out there who has information, for example, if this person confessed to someone about what they did or they have a bad feeling about a person and they they might have been responsible, I think sharing it and talking about it will put some pressure on that person because we don't ever want that person to think people have forgotten about Samantha in this case. And obviously no one has forgotten about Samantha, but if people aren't talking about it as much, they may not feel as much pressure to come forward. Yeah. And this relative to a lot of cold cases, this one isn't really that that old. I mean, 
10 right. year, ten years is is still a long time, but relative to a, a lot of cold cases that that we're going to talk about and have talked about, this one is relatively fresh. So yeah, I'm sure there's people out there who are still kind of brewing with maybe they have information that that they may not want to come forward with. Maybe they're nervous or or. Whatever. They could be scared of the yeah, person or, too. Or scared. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's still relatively recent. Yeah, it doesn't feel like ten years ago. Doesn't feel like that no, long it, ago. It, it doesn't. And loyalties change over time. Someone who heard about this in 2013 and was scared of that person, or held some sort of loyalty towards that person, that could go away over time. Could diminish over time. So. Definitely help us in spreading the word about this case. If you happen to be listening to this and you have your own True Crime podcast, I would recommend adding this to your list to cover at some point. I think more and more coverage of this case is is going to be important and, and would hopefully put some pressure on someone who does know what happened. So thank you all for joining us for this episode today. We will be back next week with a new case. Bye. Bye.